19. Unless there encouraged the inland hunters to bring their skins to the fur station on the coast. The Chilcats at the head of Lincoln now long monopolized the fur trade with the Athapascan Indians about Chilcoot Pass, these they would meet on the divide and buy their skins, which they would carry to the Hudson Bay Company agents on the coast. They guarded their monopoly jealously, and for fifty years were able to exclude all traders and miners from the passes leading to the Yukon. The same policy of monopoly and exclusion has been pursued by the Moro Coast dwellers of Mindanao in relation to the pagan tribes of the interior. They buy at low prices the forest and agriculture products of the inland Malays, whom they do not permit to approach either rivers or seaboard, for fear they may come into contact with the Chinese merchants along the coast. So fiercely is their monopoly guarded by this middleman race, that the American government in the Philippines will be able to break it only by military interference. Differences of occupation, of food supply, and of climate often further operate to differentiate the coast from the inland people nearby and to emphasize the ethnic difference which is almost invariably present, either inconspicuously from a slight infusion of alien blood, or plainly as in an immigrant race. Sometimes the contrast is in physique. In Finisterre province of western Brittany, the people along the more fertile coastal strip are on the average an inch taller than the inhabitants of the barren, granitic interior, their more generous food supply, further enriched by the abundant fisheries at their doors, would account for this increased stature, but this must also be attributed in part to intermixture of the local Celts with a tall Teutonic stock which brushed along these shores, but did not penetrate into the unattractive interior. So the Negroes of the Guinea coast, though not immune from fevers, are better nourished on the alluvial lowlands near the abundant fish of the lagoons, and hence are often stronger and better looking than the plateau interior tribes nearby. But here, again, an advantageous blending of races cannot be excluded as a contributing cause. Sometimes the advantage in physique falls to the inland people, especially in tropical countries when a highland interior is contrasted with a low coast belt. The wild Igorots, inhabiting the mountainous interior of northern Luzon, enjoy a cooler climate than the lowlands, and this has resulted in developing in them a decidedly better physique and more industrious habits than are found in the civilized people of the coasts encircling them. Where a coast people is an immigrant stock from some remote overseas point, it brings to its new home a surplus of energy which was perhaps the basis of selection in the exodus from the mother country. Such a people is therefore characterized by greater initiative, enterprise, and endurance than the sedentary population which it left behind or that to which it comes, and these qualities are often further stimulated by the transfer to a new environment rich in opportunities. Seaborne in their origin, seaborne in their migration, they cling to the zone of literal because here they find the conditions which they best know how to exploit, dwelling on the highway of the ocean, living in easy intercourse with distant countries, which would have been far more difficult of access by land travel over territories inhabited by hostile races, exchanging with these both commodities and ideas, foodstuffs and religions, they become the children of civilization, and their sunburned seamen the sturdy apostles of progress, therefore it may be laid down as a general proposition that the coasts of a country are the first part of it to develop, not an indigenous or local civilization, but a cosmopolitan culture, which later spreads inland from the seaboard. Exceptions to this rule are found in barren or inaccessible coasts like the Pacific littoral of Peru and Mexico, and on shores like those of California, Western Africa and Eastern Luzon, which occupy an adverse geographic location facing a neighborless expanse of ocean and remote from the world's earlier foci of civilization. 
Therefore the descent from the equatorial plateau of Africa down to the Atlantic littoral means a drop in culture also, because the various elements of civilization which for ages have uninterruptedly filtered into Sudan from the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, have rarely penetrated to the western rim of the highland, and hence never reached the coast. Moreover, the steaming lowland, from the Senegal River to the Cumberland Mountains, has been a last asylum for dislodged tribes who have been driven out by expanding peoples of the plateau. They have descended in their flight upon the original coast dwellers, adding to the general condition of political disruption, multiplying the number of small weak tribes, increasing the occasions for intertribal wars, and furthering the prevailing degradation. The seaboard lowlands of Sierra Leone, Liberia and the Ivory Coast have all suffered thus in historic times. All this region was the original home of the low, typical, guinea nigger, of the southern plantation. The coasts of Oregon and California showed a parallel to this in their fragmentary native tribes of retarded development, whose level of culture, low at best, sank rapidly from the interior toward the seaboard. They seem to have been intruders from the central highlands, who further deteriorated in their weakness and isolation after reaching the coast. They bore every mark of degradation in their short stature linguistic and tribal dismemberment, their low morals and culture, which ranked them little above the brutes. In contrast, all the large and superior Indian groups of North America belonged to the interior of the continent. The long, indented coast of the Mediterranean has in all ages up to modern times presented the contrast of a literal more advanced in civilization than the inland districts. The only exception was ancient Egypt before Semitic was began to exploit his mud-choked seaboard. This contrast was apparent not only wherever Phoenicians or Greeks had appropriated the remote coast of an alien and retarded people, but even in nearby Thrace the savage habits of the interior tribes were softened only where these dwelt in close proximity to the Ionian colonies along the coast, a fact as noticeable in the time of Tacitus as in that of Herodotus 500 years before. The ancient philosophers of Greece were awake to the deep-rooted differences between an inland and a maritime city, especially in respect to a receptivity of ideas activity of intellect, and affinity for culture. If we turn to the Philippines, we find that 65% of the Christian or civilized population of the islands live on or near the coast, and of the remaining 35% dwelling inland. By far the greater part represents simply the landward extension of the area of Christian civilization which had Manila Bay for a nucleus. Otherwise, all the interior districts are occupied by wild or pagan tribes. Mohammedanism. 2 a religion of civilization, rims the southernmost islands which face the eastern distributing point of the faith in Java, it is confined to the coasts, except for its one inland area of expansion along the lake and river system of the Rio Grande of Mindanao, which afforded an inland extension of sea navigation for the small moral boat. Even the Fiji Islands show different shades of savagery between coasts and interior. Coasts are areas of outgoing and incoming maritime influences. The nature and amount of these influences depend upon the sea or ocean whose rim the coast in question helps to form, and the relations of that coast to its other tide-washed shores. Our land-made point of view dominates us so completely, that we are prone to consider a coast as margin of its land, and not also as margin of its sea. Once, moreover, it receives the most important contributions to its development. The geographic location of a coast as part of a thalassic or of an oceanic rim is a basic factor in its history, more potent than local conditions of fertility, irregular contour, or accessibility from sea and hinterland. 
everything that can be said about the different degrees of historical importance at a shade inland seas and open oceans in successive ages applies equally to the countries and peoples along their shores, and everything that enhances or diminishes the cultural possibilities of a sea its size, zonal location, its relation to the oceans and continents finds its expression in the life along its coasts. The anthropogeographical evolution which has passed from small to a large states and from small to a large seas as fields of maritime activity has been attended by a continuous change in the value of coasts. According as these were located on enclosed basins like the Mediterranean, Red, and Baltic, on marginal ones like the China and North Seas, or on the open ocean, in the earlier periods of the world's history. A location on a relatively small enclosed sea gave a maritime horizon wide enough to allure but not so wide as to intimidate, and by its seclusion led to a concentration and intensification of historical development, which in many of its phases left models for subsequent ages to wonder at and imitate. This formative period and formative environment outgrown, historical development was transferred to locations on the open oceans. According to the law of human advance from small to large areas, the historical importance of the Mediterranean and the Baltic shores was transitory a prelude to the larger importance of the Atlantic littoral of Europe, just as this in turn was to attain its full significance only when the circumnavigation of Africa and South America linked the Atlantic to the world ocean, thus that gradual expansion of the geographic horizon which has accompanied the progress of history has seen a slow evolution in the value of seaboard locations, the transfer of maritime leadership from small to large basins, from Thalassic to oceanic ports, from Lubeck to Hamburg, from Venice to Genoa, as earlier from the Piraeus to Ostia, and later from England's little sink ports to Liverpool and the Clyde, though the articulations of a coast determine the ease with which maritime influences are communicated to the land, nevertheless history shows repeated instances where an exceptional location, combined with restricted area, has raised a poorly indented seaboard to maritime and cultural preeminence. Finish's brilliant history rose superior to the limitation of indifferent harbors allowing to a position on the Arabian Isthmus between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean at the meeting place of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Moreover, the advantages of this particular location have in various times and in various degrees brought into prominence all parts of the Syrian and Egyptian coasts from Antioch to Alexandria, so the whole stretch of coast around the head of the Adriatic, marking the conjunction of a busy sea route with various land routes over the encircling mountains from Central Europe has seen during the ages a long succession of thriving maritime cities, in spite of fast silting harbors and impeded connection with the hinterland, here in turn have ruled with maritime sway Spina, Ravenna, Aquileia, Venice, and Trieste. On the other side of the Italian peninsula, the location on the northernmost inlet of the western Mediterranean and at the seaward base of the Ligurian Apennines, just where this range opens to passes of only 1.800 feet elevation to the upper Po Valley made an active maritime town of Genoa from Strabo's day to the present. In its incipient key it relied upon one mediocre harbor on an otherwise harborless coast, a local supply of timber for its ships, and a road northward across the mountains. The maritime ascendancy in the Middle Ages of Genoa, Pisa, Venice, and Barcelona proves that no long indented coast is necessary, but only one tolerable harbor coupled with an advantageous location allowing to the ease and cheapness of water transportation, a seaboard position between two other coasts of contrasted products due to a difference either of zonal location or of economic development or of both combined, 
ensures commercial exchanges and the inevitable activities of the middlemen. The position of Carthage near the center of the Mediterranean enabled her to fatten on the trade between the highly developed eastern basin and the retarded western one, midway between the teeming industrial towns of medieval Flanders, Holland, and western Germany, and the new unexploited districts of retarded Russia, Poland, and Scandinavia, lay the long line of the German Hanseatic towns Kiel, Lübeck, Weimar, Rostock, Stralsund, Greifswald, Anklam, Stettin, and Kohlberg. The Chivitates Maradini. For three centuries or more they made themselves the dominant commercial and maritime power of the Baltic by exchanging Flemish fabrics, German hardware, and Spanish wines for the furs and wax of Russian forests, tallow and hides from Polish pastures, and crude metals from Swedish mines. So Portugal by its geographical location became a staple place where the tropical products from the East Indies were transferred to the vessels of Dutch merchants and by them distributed to Northern Europe, later New England, by a parallel location, became the middleman in the exchanges of the tropical products of the West Indies, the tobacco of Virginia, and the wheat of Maryland for the manufactured wares of England and the fish of Newfoundland. Primitive or early maritime commerce has always been characterized by the shore peat, a succession of middlemen coasts, and a close series of staple places, such as served the early Indian Ocean trade in Oman, Malabar Coast. Ceylon, Coromandel Coast, Malacca, and Java. Therefore, many a literal admirably situated for middleman trade loses this advantage so soon as commerce matures enough to extend the sweep of its voyages, and to bring into direct contact the two nations for which that coast was intermediary. This is only another aspect of the anthropogeographic evolution from small to large areas. The decline of the Mediterranean coasts followed close upon the discovery of the sea route to India, nor was their local importance restored by the Suez Canal. Portugal declined when the Dutch, excluded from the Tagus mouth on the union of Portugal with Spain, found their way to the Spice Isles. Ceylon, though still the chief port of call in the Indian Ocean, has lost its preeminence as chief market for all the lands between Africa and China, which it enjoyed in the 6th century owing to the long haul of modern oceanic commerce. Not only that far-reaching readjustment of maritime ascendancy which in the 16th century followed the advance from Thalassic to oceanic fields of commerce, but also purely local political events may for a time produce striking changes in the use or importance of coasts. The Piraeus, which had been the heart of ancient Athens, almost wholly lost its value in the checkered political history of the country during the Middle Ages when naval power and merchant marine almost vanished, but with the restoration of Grecian independence in 1832, much of its pristine activity was restored. Up to the beginning of the 17th century, Japan had exploited her advantageous location and her richly indented coast to develop a maritime trade which extended from Kamchatka to India, but in 1624 an imperial order withdrew every Japanese vessel from the high seas and for over 200 years robbed her busy literal of all its historical significance. The real life of the Pacific coast of the United States began only with its incorporation into the territory of the Republic, but it failed to attain its full importance until our acquisition of Alaska, Hawaii, and the Philippines. So the coast of the Persian Gulf has had periods of activity alternating with periods of death-like quiet. Its conquest by the Saracens in the 7th century inaugurated an era of intense maritime enterprise along its drowsy shores. What new awakening may it experience, if it should one day become a Russian literal? Sometimes the decline in historical importance is due to physical modifications in the coast itself, especially when, 
the mud transported by a great river to the sea is constantly pushing forward the outer shoreline. The control of the Adriatic passed in turn from Spina to Adria, Ravenna, Aquileia, Venice, and Trieste, owing to a steady silting up of the coast. Strabo records that Spina, originally a port, was in his time 90 stadia, or 10 miles, from the sea. Bruges, once the great entrepôt of the Hanseatic League, was originally on an arm of the sea, with which it was later connected by canal, and which has been silted up since 1432, so that its commerce, disturbed to by local wars, was transferred to Antwerp on the Scout. Many early English ports on the coast of Kemp and on the old solid rim of the Fenland marshes now lie miles inland from the Channel and the Wash. A people never utilizes all parts of its coast with equal intensity, or any part with equal intensity in all periods of its development, but, according to the law of differentiation, it gradually concentrates its energies in a few favored ports, whose maritime business tends to become specialized. Then every extension of the subsidiary territory and intensification of production with advancing civilization increases the mass of men and wares passing through these ocean gateways. The shores of New York, Delaware, and Chesapeake Bays are more important to the country now than they were in early colonial days, when their back country extended only to the watershed of the Appalachian system. Our Gulf Coast has gained in activity with the South's economic advance from slave to free labor and from almost exclusive cotton planting to diversified production combined with industries, and it will come into its own, in a maritime sense, when the opening of the Panama Canal will divert from the Atlantic outlets those products of the Mississippi Basin which will be seeking trans-Pacific markets. A careful analysis of the life of coast peoples in relation to all the factors of their land and sea environment shows that these are multiform, and that none are negligible, it takes into consideration the extent, fertility, and relief of the littoral, its accessibility from the land as well as from the sea, and its location in regard to outlying islands and to opposite shores, whether near or far, it holds in view not only the small articulations that give the littoral ready contact with the sea, but the relation of the seaboard to the larger continental articulations, whether it lies on an outrunning spur of a continental mass, like the Malacca, Yemen, or Peloponnesian coast or upon a retiring inlet that brings it far into the heart of a continent, and provides it with an extensive hinterland, and, finally, it never ignores the nature of the bordering sea, which furnishes the school of seamanship and fixes the scope of maritime enterprise. All these various elements of coastal environment are further differentiated in their use and their influence according to the purposes of those who come to tenant such tide-washed rims of the land. Pirates seek intricate channels and hidden inlets for their lairs, a merchant people select populous harbors and navigable river mouths, would-be colonists settle upon fertile valleys opening into quiet bays, till their fields, and use their coasts for placid maritime trade with the mother country, interior peoples, pushed or pushing out to the tidal periphery of their continent, with no maritime history behind them, build their fishing villages on protected lagoons, and, unless the shadowy form of some outlying island lure them farther, there they tarry, death to the siren song of the sea. Chapter IX Oceans and Enclosed Seas The water of the Earth's surface, viewed from the standpoint of anthropogeography, is one, whether it appears as atmospheric moisture, spring, river, lake, brackish lagoon, enclosed sea basin or open ocean, its universal circulation, from the falling of the dews to the vast sweep of ocean current, causes this inviolable unity. Variations in the geographical forms of water are superficial and constantly changing, 
they pass into one another by almost imperceptible gradations, shift their unstable outlines at the bidding of the mobile, restless element, in contrast to the land, which is marked by diversity of geologic structure and geographic form, the world of water is everywhere approximately the same, excepting only the difference in the mineral composition of sea water as opposed to that of spring and stream, therefore, whenever man has touched it, it has molded him in much the same way, given the same direction to his activities, dictated the use of the same implements and methods of navigation, as maritime trader or colonist, he has sailed to a remote, unknown, yet familiar coasts, and found himself as much at home as on his native shores, he has built up maritime empires, the center of whose dominion, race and commerce, fall somewhere in the dividing yet uniting sea, man must be grouped with the air and water as part of the mobile envelope of the earth's surface, the mobility which maintains the unity of air and water has caused the unity of the human race, abundant facilities of dispersal often give animal forms a wide or cosmopolitan distribution, man, by appropriating the mobile forces in the air and water to increase his own powers of locomotion, has become a cosmopolitan being, and made the human race reflect the unity of atmosphere and hydrosphere, always the eternal unrest of the moving waters has knocked at the door of human inertia to arouse the sleeper within, always the flow of stream and the ebb of tide have sooner or later stirred the curiosity of the land-born barbarian about the unseen destination of these marshing, waters, Rivers by the mere force of gravity have carried him to the shores of their common ocean, and placed him on this highway of the world, then from his sea-girt home, whether island or continent, he has timidly or involuntarily followed the track which headland-dotted coast, or ocean current, or monsoon, or trade wind marked out for him across the pathless waters, so that at the grey dawn of history he appears as a cosmopolite, occupying every part of the habitable earth, these sporadic oversea wanderings, with intervals of centuries or millenniums between, open to his occupancy strange and remote lands, in whose isolation and new environment he developed fresh variations of mind, body and cultural achievements, to arm him with new weapons in the struggle for existence, the sea which brought him bars him for a few ages from his old home, till the tradition of his coming even is lost, then with higher nautical development, the sea loses its barrier nature, movements of people, and trade recross its surface to unite those who have been long severed and much differentiated in their mutual remoteness. The ensuing friction and mingling weed out the less fit variations of each, and combine in the new race the qualities able to fortify a higher type of man. Not only seas and oceans, but also mountains and deserts serve to isolate the migrant people who once has crossed them, but wastes of water raise up the most effective barriers. The transformation of the ocean into a highway by the development of navigation is a late occurrence in the history of man and is perhaps the highest phase of his adaptation to environment, because an adaptation which has placed at his disposal that vast water area constituting three-fourths of the Earth's surface from which he had previously been excluded. Moreover, it was adaptation to an alien and hostile element, whose violent displays of power recurrently stimulated the human adjustment between attack and defense because adaptation to the sea has been vastly more difficult than to the land, commensurate with the harder struggle it has brought greater intellectual and material rewards. This conquest of the sea is entitled to a peculiarly high place in history, because it has contributed to the union of the various peoples of the world, has formed a significant part of the history of man, whether that history is economic, social, political or intellectual. 
hence history has always staged its most dramatic acts upon the margin of seas and oceans, here always the plot thickens and gives promise of striking development. Rome of the Seven Hills pales before England of the Seven Seas. Universal history loses half its import, remains an aggregate of parts, fails to yield its significance as a whole, if it does not continually take into account the unifying factor of the seas. Indeed, no history is entitled to the name of universal unless it includes a record of human movements and activities on the ocean, side by side with those on the land. Our school textbooks in geography present a deplorable hiatus because they fail to make a definite study of the oceans over which man explores and colonizes and trades, as well as the land on which he plants and builds and sleeps. The striking fact about the great world ocean today is the manifold relations which it has established between the dwellers on its various coasts. Marine cables, steamer and sailing routes combine to form a network of paths across the vast commons of the deep. Over these the commercial, political, intellectual, or even purely migrant activities of human life move from continent to continent. The distinctive value of the sea is that it promotes many-sided relations as opposed to the one-sided relation of the land. France on her eastern frontier comes into contact with people of kindred stock, living under similar conditions of climate and soil to her own. On her maritime border she is open to intermittent intercourse with all continents and climes and races of the world. To the sea border must be ascribed the share that France has taken in the history of North and South America, the West Indies, North and Equatorial Africa, India, China and the South Seas. So we find the great maritime peoples of the world, from the Phoenicians to the English, each figuring in the history of the world of its day, and helping weave into a web of universal history the stories of its various parts. Man's normal contact with the sea is registered in his nautical achievements. The invention of the first primitive means of navigation, suggested by a floating log or bloated body of a dead animal, must have been an early achievement, of a great many peoples who lived near the water, or who in the course of their wanderings found their progress obstructed by rivers, it belongs to a large class of similar discoveries which answer urgent and constantly recurring needs, it was, in all probability, often made and as often lost again until a growing habit of venturing beyond shore or river bank in search of better fishing, or of using the easy open waterways through the thick tangle of a primeval forest to reach fresh hunting grounds, established it as a permanent acquisition. The first devices were simply floats or rafts, made of light wood, reeds, or the hollow stems of plants woven together and often buoyed up by the inflated skins of animals. Floats of this character still survive among various peoples, especially in poorly timbered lands. The skin rafts which for ages have been the chief means of downstream traffic on the rivers of Mesopotamia, consist of a square framework of interwoven reeds and branches, supported by the inflated skins of sheep and goats, they are guided by oars and poles down or across the current. These were the primitive means by which Laird transported his wing bull from the ruins of Nineveh down to the Persian Gulf, and they were the same which he found on the Bays reliefs of the ancient capital showing the methods of navigation 3,000 years ago. Similar skin rafts serve as ferry boats on the Sulage, Shajak and other head streams of the Indus. They reappear in Africa as the only form of ferry used by the Moors on the river Morbea in Morocco, on the Nile, where the inflated skins are supplanted by earthen pots, and on the Yo River of semi-arid Sudan, where the platform is made of reeds and is buoyed up by calabashes fastened beneath. In treeless lands, Reeds growing on the margins of streams and lakes are utilized for the construction of boats, 
The Muduma Islanders of Lake Chad use clumsy skiffs 18 feet long, made of hollow reeds tied into bundles and then lashed together in a way to form a slight cavity on top. In the earliest period of Egyptian history this type of boat with slight variations was used in the papyrus marshes of the Nile, and it reappears as the ombatch boat which Schweinfurth observed on the upper White Nile. It is in use far away among the cyads or flowers, who inhabit the reed-grown rim of the Sistan Lake in Arab Persia. As the Peruvian balsa, it has been the regular means of water travel on Lake Titicaca since the time of the Incas, and in more primitive form it appears among the Shoshone Indians of the Snake River Valley of Idaho, who used this device in their treeless land to cross the streams, when the water was too cold for swimming. Still cruder rafts of reeds, without approach to boat form, were the sole vehicles of navigation among the backward Indians of San Francisco Bay and were the prevailing craft among the coast Indians farther south and about the Gulf of Lower California. Trees abounded, but these remnant tribes of low intelligence, probably recent arrivals on the coast from the interior, equipped only with instruments of bone and stone, found the difficulty of working with wood prohibitive. The second step in the elaboration of water conveyance was made when near flotation was succeeded by various devices to secure displacement. The evolution is obvious. The primitive raftsman of the Mesopotamian rivers wove his willow boughs and osiers into a large, round basket form, covered it with closely sewn skins to render it watertight, and in it floated with his merchandise down the swift current from Armenia to Babylon. These were the boats which Herodotus saw on the Euphrates, and which survive today. According to Pliny, the ancient Britons used a similar craft, framed of wicker work and covered with hide in which they crossed the English and Irish channels to visit their kinsfolk on the opposite shores. The skin boat or coracle or cura still survives on the rivers of Wales and the west coast of Ireland, where it is used by the fishermen and considered the safest craft for stormy weather. It recalls the pole skin boat used in pioneer days on the rivers of our western plains, and the skiff serving as passenger ferries today on the rivers of eastern Tibet. It reappears among the Arikara Indians of the upper Missouri and the South American tribes of the Grand Chaco.